once again, listener. I am delighted to welcome you to another episode of the Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology podcast in conversation with... My name is Hugh Thomas, and I'm the Deputy Editor. The paper we are discussing today is on antibiotic resistance in Helicobacter pylori, or H. pylori, in the Asia-Pacific region. Before we introduce that study, though, and our guest, first, a brief overview of what else is out now in our January 2024 issue. Leading our content is an editorial that covers ongoing efforts to reduce alcohol harms at a population level. In particular, it explores how the alcohol industry both benefits from and promotes stigmatization of people with alcohol use disorder and alcohol-related disease as a means to lobby against harm reduction policies. In terms of our research content, there are three other primary research articles in the issue. The first is a randomized controlled trial, or RCT, reporting that for patients with largely stable infected necrotizing pancreatitis, a step-up endoscopic approach led to fewer reinterventions and a shorter hospital stay than did an upfront endoscopic necrosectomy. Then we have two papers in esophageal squamous cell carcinoma. The first, a large RCT reporting a potential benefit of an AI system for improving endoscopic diagnosis of early lesions. And the second, the open-label ESO Shanghai 13 trial, which reports that a combination of systemic plus local therapy leads to longer progression-free survival than systemic therapy alone in patients with oligometastatic disease. In our review section, we have a fantastic paper overviewing gastrointestinal polyposis and the genetics thereof, covering all of the syndromes, tumour features, and all aspects from genetic testing through to clinical management. In this section, we also have a viewpoint article exploring the implementation of a liver health check for people with type 2 diabetes. For all of this content, plus correspondence and our usual news and in-focus features, head online now to thelancet.com. And without further ado, let's meet our guest. Joining me today to discuss our lead paper on H. pylori antibiotic resistance is Dr. Tsuchan Hong. Dr. Hong is an attending physician, specialist in gastroenterology and hepatology and digestive endoscopy at the Department of Internal Medicine at the National Taiwan University Cancer Center in Taipei, Taiwan. His research interests cover gastric cancer screening and prevention, the molecular biology of gastric cancer, H. pylori infection and treatment, and the gut microbiota. Dr. Hong, a big welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for joining us today. Hello, Hugh, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here to discuss our recent work. Wonderful. So we always like to start right at the beginning to introduce our listeners to the topic. And so I just wanted to ask you, why is antibiotic resistance of Helicobacter pylori or H. pylori, as we will probably be end up saying in this in this podcast, why is that such an important problem? Well, uh, H. pylori is a globally prevalent bacterium linked to human diseases, including gastritis, peptic ulcers, and gastric cancer. And effective eradication of H. pylori can reduce the incidence of these conditions and their recurrence and also improve its uh, associated health burden. And in managing H. pylori infections, uh, we typically employ a combination of antibiotics alongside uh, proton pump inhibitors over a 10 to 14 day course. And these include widely used uh, clarisomycin-based uh, triple therapy, as well as uh, concomitant, sequential hybrid and reverse hybrid therapy, etc. We also have um, bismuth quadruple therapy and levofloxacin-based regimens. The key antibiotic components of these regimens are clarisomycin, metronidazole, uh, levofloxacin, amoxicillin, and tetracycline. 
However, uh, we're observing a concerning increase in resistance to these antibiotics, which is beginning to compromise the success of uh, standard treatments. It's a significant global health challenge as it threatens our capacity to manage H. pylori infections reliably. In response, um, there is a shift in clinical guidelines now recommending that the choice of first-line therapy should be informed by the local resistant rates, especially for clarisomycin. Furthermore, uh, following the principles of um, antibiotic stewardship, um, guidelines advocate for routine bacterial culture and susceptibility testing before treatment initiation, if available. However, um, from a global perspective, uh, it's worth not noting that uh, susceptibility testing isn't always accessible, which makes the empirical selection of treatment regimens tailored to local antibiotic-resistant patterns incredibly vital. So um, our study contributes current data on these uh, resistant trends and offering insights that are critical for uh, refining treatment strategies. And so you'd previously looked at this question focusing on the antibiotic resistance of H. pylori in the Asia-Pacific region in a 2017 systematic review and meta-analysis that uh, was published in, in the Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology. What did you find in that study and why did you decide that now was the, the optimal time to revisit that question? Yeah, um, in our 2017 study, um, we observed an upward trend in the resistance dip, uh, patterns of uh, clarisomycin and levofloxacin among H. pylori infections. Interestingly, the primary resistance rates showed a significant variation across different countries in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, one notable finding was uh, the suboptimal e efficacy of clarisomycin-based treatment regimens, specifically the efficacy rates falling below the 80% benchmark in countries where the chrysomycin resistance exceeded 20%. Uh, this highlighted a direct impact of resistance on treatment success. So um, considering the uh, ever-evolving landscape of antibiotic resistance and with uh, recent literature indicating a similar upward trend in metronidazole resistance as well, we felt a strong impetus to revisit and updated our research. Uh, it's important to continuously monitor these resistant trends, not only to understand the current scenario, but also to adapt our treatment strategies uh, for, uh, to effectively respond to these changes. Wonderful. So moving on to your new systematic review and meta-analysis, how did you go about conducting it? Uh, well, uh, in conducting our study, um, we undertook a comprehensive literature search uh, spanning across key medical databases, uh, including PubMed, Embase, and Cochrane Library. Uh, this search covered publications from January 1990 up to July 2023. Our primary focus um, was to gather detailed data on H. pylori resistance to crucial antibiotics specifically targeting studies involving patients who had not received prior eradication therapy. Our primary endpoints um, were the prevalence of antibiotic resistance. We performed a random effects meta-analysis for the prevalence of antibiotic resistance. 
We also performed subgroup analysis to look into trends over time across different countries. Considering the uh, United Nations Geo Scheme for Regional Classification, uh, we also ensure the robustness of our findings by assessing study bias by two tools, including a five-item Newcastle-Ottawa Quality Assessment Scale consistent with our previous study and a Joanna Briggs Institute Critical Appraisal Checklist for the updated studies. Uh, we performed univariable and multivariable meta-regression to adjust for potential confounding factors affecting the resistance. We also include different regions, collection periods, and methods of resistance detection according to pre previous literature. And this comprehensive approach allows us to draw a robust and up-to-date picture of the resistance patterns. Brilliant. So moving on to the results of the study and, and what you actually found in your systematic review and meta-analysis. How many studies did you identify and end up including in the paper? And can you just summarize for us, uh, acknowledging there's a there's a lot of data and a lot of results in the paper that people can go to the paper and check, but what were the kind of the overall results for that primary endpoint of primary antibiotic resistance and how that changed over time in the Asia-Pacific region? Uh, yeah, uh, when analyzed data from a total of uh, 351 studies, uh, this includes uh, 176 studies from our previous analysis and 175 new ones, providing us uh, with a comprehensive data set. Our findings were quite revealing. Uh, the primary resistance rate for clarosomycin has risen to 30%, a significant uh, 61% for metronidazole, 35% for levofloxacin, when we look back at the trends from 1990 through 2022, uh, there was a clear and concerning increase in the resistance to these antibiotics. Uh, meanwhile, uh, resistance to amoxicillin and tetracycline has remained relatively low, with the latest data 6% for amoxicillin and 4% for tetracycline, which is reassuring. Um, the very Variation in resistance pattern over time really highlights the critical need of monitoring resistance and adapting our treatment approaches. Certainly, I think those results where you found so many new studies and such a, a, a change in that resistance for certain antibiotics over the past few years really highlights the, the benefit of revisiting that work as well. So just getting a bit more granular then, which regions or countries in, in the Asia-Pacific region showed the highest resistance rates? Okay, uh, to answer this question, uh, we have to look at the latest resistance rates and uh, also the results of multivariable meta-regression. Uh, for clarisomycin, Iraq showed the highest resistance rate at uh, 65%. Turning to metronidazole, Pakistan recorded the highest resistance at 73%. For uh, levofloxacin resistance uh, was most pronounced in India which it reaches uh, 68%. As for tetracycline, Iran and Vietnam both reported the highest resistance rate at uh, 21%. Lastly, amoxicillin resistance peaked in Pakistan at about uh, 28%. It's noteworthy though, the resistance levels were significantly higher across the South Asia region for both metronidazole and amoxicillin. 
And in the paper, you discuss reports from other regions, including Europe and the USA, that find similar increases in, in certain um, H. pylori antibiotic resistance. Uh, what factors do you think then might be behind the rise in resistance rates? And, you know, kind of more broadly, and I guess the implication of, of this work is really, what can we do to slow or halt that rise in resistance? The rise in H. pylori antibiotic resistance seen globally can be linked to um, increased antibiotic consumption, as evidenced in a European study done by Professor McGall and colleagues, um, showing a correlation between H. pylori resistance to clarisomycin and metra, uh, macrolide use and levofloxacin resistance with uh, fluoroquinolone use in the community. Um, previous study performed by Klein and colleagues also showed that um, in low- and middle-income countries, there's a notable increase in antibiotic use, while it uh, remained stably high in high-income countries. And this observation likely uh, contribute to this resistance. So the difference resistant patterns for antibiotics like um, clarisomycin, metronidazole, and levofloxacin as opposed to amoxicillin and tetracycline might stem uh, from their distinct resistant mechanisms. So um, to mitigate this um, rationally used of antibiotics and enhancing stewardship programs are crucial. Wonderful. Um, Dr. Hong, thank you once again uh, massively for being able to take us through that paper. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you, Hugh. You can read the paper on primary H. pylori antibiotic resistance in the Asia-Pacific online now, along with all of the other content I mentioned previously in our January 2024 issue at thelancet.com. Thank you to Dr. Hong, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology podcast in conversation with. Remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation With wherever you usually get your podcasts.